Welcome, welcome, welcome to Looking California and Feeling Minnesota, everybody's favorite cinema podcast. My name is Michael McCaffrey. I am a writer and active coach out here in sunny Southern California, and I'm joined by... Gary Anderson, director extraordinaire based in lovely Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, I'm obviously Looking California, and Barry is Feeling Minnesota. And today we are here to talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire which is a French film set in late 18th century France about an aristocratic woman who uh, is, has a relationship with a painter commissioned to paint her portrait. The film is directed and written by Celine Chiama and stars Naomi Merlant and Adele Hanel. And the film has been pretty successful in the world. It uh, won Best Screenplay at the Cannes Film Festival. It was not nominated for Best Foreign Picture at the Oscars, probably just because the Oscars only allow one film per country. And for some reason, France chose Les Miserables, which is another film I saw. Um, And so that's the film we're talking about, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And by the way, it has French subtitles, just so everybody knows. It's a French film. It is. With French subtitles. So... Barry and I saw the film this week separately, yep. and we've not spoken a word about it. We, yep. we have no idea how the other feels. And so this is going to be a very exciting episode of Looking <laughs> California, <laughs> Feeling Minnesota. Exciting or disastrous, one of the two. And I, I think Probably I'm... both <laughs> is, what, is what I'm expecting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let people know, though, because it's a foreign film and not wildly, you know, readily available everywhere, and I know that, you know, for the cinephile fans out there, you know, they'll be one to watch it. If you're, you know, someone that naturally stays away from foreign films with subtitles, there are definitely going to be spoilers in this one. But if you're not a person who would normally see a movie in subtitles, you might actually want to listen to this before you see it because good or bad, you might be looking for different things than you normally are. So it'll be up to you if you want to hear spoilers or not, but I don't think there's any possible way we can talk about this movie without potentially giving away plot points or stuff that you know you might not want to know before you see it. So I don't know, if, I don't know if you concur or not, but- uh, I, I do concur. There. I do concur. So Barry Anderson from Minneapolis, Minnesota, what did you think? of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh, of course you asked me first. Um, I am, I'm, I still, this movie has stuck with me unlike most movies I see because I can't quite put a pin on it. There are things I loved about the movie and there are things I did not love about the movie and all of it's fascinating. It is, it is, I would, to me, it was a fascinating movie and it couldn't, and I think parts of it are fascinating in the quality, and parts of it are fascinating, like, like watching a car wreck. And you're like, I don't understand why that was done. I don't understand what the meaning was behind there. But yet, you couldn't not look away. So I don't know if I gave it one out of five stars, five being, you know, one of the great cinema classics, I'd maybe give it like three and a half. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And and we should tell our, our listeners, first of all, that Barry's perspective, Barry is a devout uh, xenophobe and misogynist. And so this is a French film about women. And so you can understand Barry's reticence uh, regarding it. I'm kidding. I'm joking. Barry's 
neither of those things. Um, yeah, you know, I feel the same way about it, oddly enough. I felt it was, there were some really great things about it yes. that, I, that I loved. There were some things I thought just didn't work. Yep. Um, and I know it's top of my list for that one. Okay. <laughs> with me. I know, I know um, right away what one I didn't like. But I'll say this. See, I, I'll, I think it's exquisitely photographed. Yes. I think it's... Well, the, 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 go ahead. The, the look, I'm going to put a caveat. The look is exquisite. I actually have some major... I don't know if it would be a complaint. It's one of the things I'm going to enjoy talking about. They made some very curious choices with their lensing. And mm. I, I don't think I liked it. And I want to see if maybe you picked up on something that I didn't versus why they chose to do it a certain way. So the look of the movie is exquisite, but the way it's filmed, I felt was far more clumsy than it should have been. Interesting. I, I, I did not think that. I thought um, the use of light, particularly natural light and low light, like yes. the flame and all that, I thought that was great. All that was um, And actually the cinematographer, whose name is Claire Maton, a woman, Barry. Yes. Um, Clearly that's why I didn't like it. So thank you. Yes, she. She won down again. She won the Lumiere Award for Best Cinematography, and uh, yeah, so I, I we, we can get into that. So because I'm interested to hear your thoughts, but uh, yeah, I thought it was one of those films that it's uneven in a lot of ways, um, but the things that work about it are so for instance, the things that are uneven, there are two actresses basically in the whole movie. Yep. There are, I, I think there's maybe one man who makes a brief appearance, but it's these two actresses and a maid yep. um, character. And the two actresses, uh, Naomi Merlant plays the, the painter and Adele Hanel plays uh, the aristocratic woman. I thought their performances were very uneven. I thought Merlant, who, who is really the lead of the film, I thought she was pretty weak. And I thought Hanel was fantastic. Um, so again, just for people who aren't following you, Hanel is the painter? No, Merlant is the painter and Hanel is the aristocrat. So... Uh, Maybe it would be easier if I just said Naomi and Adele. Adele is the aristocrat and Naomi is the painter. And I thought Naomi was not a very charismatic, compelling lead, but I thought Adele was absolutely captivating. She, there's just something about her that is very uh, appealing and alluring and mysterious and uh, magnetic. And so I thought she did a very, very good job. And I thought the script itself, the story, was uneven as well. It's a story about two women falling in love with each other and, and this sort of slow burn of uh, pseudo-seduction sort of thing. And I felt that just didn't work. I, it didn't feel like that was happening to me, except the end of the film, the last 15 minutes of it or so, are so well done in terms of story that in hindsight, everything is elevated. It's, the, the ending is so 
dramatically spectacular in the sense that it gives meaning and purpose to everything that came before it that you go, oh, but as the stuff that came before it was happening, you're sort of like, oh, you know, whatever. That, that's not that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to play off of what you just said, because I agree. And what I, what I, if I'm going to, you know, this is the Hollywood studio boss pitch. My, my take of the movie is it's the reverse of Up. I've always said that Up, the Pixar movie, mm-hmm. the first five minutes were so compelling and it, it emotionally messed with you to such a degree, you forgot about the rest of the movie because the first part was so great. So when people say they love Up, what they love is the first five minutes. They may or may not remember the rest of the movie. And I felt this movie, you kind of, you know, things were interesting, some things worked, some didn't, but that last 15, 20 minutes, it elevated everything. It was kind of like you needed that first part for the latter part to work, and it worked so well, it was almost like, how did they not capture this the rest of the movie? Right. I think partly it's a script problem, but I, I actually really loved how, for the most part, the script set up proper tension, proper barriers, you know, different, like, you know, goals from the different characters in the scene. So I thought it was well-crafted so that you could actually play and have emotion. I disagree with you that I think both of the leads were not great nor bad, but I thought they did not convey a connection at almost any point in the movie. I I felt their chemistry, if you would have had two people that leapt off the screen for each other, even if they weren't as great of actresses, I think it's a, I think it's a, you know, that elevates the movie by a factor of 10. Um, And I, I was disappointed. It's not that they were bad actresses or that they gave like bad performances. They were definitely uneven, but I just thought that there's these moments where you're like, I'm supposed to be feeling something. And I'm just like, I don't feel nothing. I don't, none of this is working. And I couldn't always put a, you know, a finger on it because I was analyzing, okay, here's where they are in the story. This is where they're supposed to be. This is where like, you know, something's going to change and you kind of feel, okay, now it's going to pivot from here. And those big moments, oftentimes just, you're like, okay, here's a moment. And you're kind of like, did I miss it? Because I didn't feel what I was supposed to until the end. And then the end was absolutely worth sitting through the whole movie for, in my opinion, because I I had goosebumps. I had tears in my eyes. It was like suddenly everything I'd been sitting through, like I was just, I mean, it spoke. Oftentimes one of my complaints with movies like this can be, you know, I wasn't sure what the kind of the purpose was. I mean, French films in general, they're far more open with sex. You know, nowadays, if you're going to jump on uh, a, a topic like, a, you know, a lesbian love story, part of the concern is, is that it becomes too much, like too inaccessible for people who don't have that exact journey. And what I loved about this movie, especially the ending, is it was universal. It was anybody who has loved and lost, and even for sometimes the right reasons, you know, parted ways, but yet there's some connection that's never lost there. I mean, it was as universal a theme that was accessible to no matter who you are, where you are, what language, what gender, it just hit you and it was just real. And that was the, to me, the, 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 you know, the five star is the, the ability to pull that off because I don't think that's easy uh, to do. Um, yeah, just to go through all that and, and just explain to the listeners how wrong you are. Um, <laughs> no, so I agree with with most of that. I would say this about the performances. Uh, Naomi Merlant, who plays the painter, um, 
I, you're right. There is the chemistry between the two is severely lacking. There's just not a spark between the two of them. But Merlant, um, there's just nothing. There's no internal life to her, and so she's a bit dead behind the eyes. She Whereas felt, she felt like a porcelain doll, where you yeah. would look at her and you have a reaction, but it was like you didn't want to go too deep because you know it felt hollow. That's how I felt. Yeah, and and Adele Hanel plays the aristocrat. It just felt like there were oceans of depth within her that came through just her eyes. You know that like she had this internal life with her that was uh, palpable. Um, you know that doesn't overcome the the lack of chemistry, but it does it does make her a more magnetic performer in in the movie. In terms of the end, um, I agree. It it really is universal, and it's the idea of, you know, people having secret. You know that that when you have this deep love affair with someone, they take a piece of you with them, and you take a piece of them, and that never changes. Um, but the very last scene at the opera is oh. Adele Hanel is, is listening to... Um... Can, can I interrupt you? Yeah. I think before you tell that, one of the things, and I don't, I'm curious when you noticed it, and it builds up to your thing, so remember your point, because it's very important, but I think contextually, if you haven't seen the movie, this is very important. So this was a bit, like, I think it was just over two hours. So, I mean, it's a pretty lengthy movie yeah. for the pacing. There's not a ton of dialogue. And what was fascinating to me is... I can't remember about, but it was it, it was more than 20 minutes in, but before the half out or the halfway point, I realized that there was no score to this movie at all. There was no music. There were only two points in the movie where there were music or what you could call music. There was one point where they're at the bonfire and the other girls around there started almost like a Gregorian chant that starts off like it's like a noise and then it forms into music, but kind of a weird music. And they have a discussion in the movie um, for the aristocrat who has never heard an opera. So that end sequence, and what's funny is I thought they did a really good job of planting that seed, but then you kind of forget about it. So when, yeah. when you're sitting in that final sequence and you're like, oh my God, and everything they built up, I, I get goosebumps thinking about it right now, is she wanted to take this love to go see the opera, but they couldn't. But she finds herself sitting in the opera hall and she looks over and she gets to watch her secret love go through and they never cut. They never cut from her. And you just, yep, yep. you get to listen to the, and the music builds to almost being so loud it almost hurts your ears. It, 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 it completely envelops you. And you're watching her go from tearing to like, I mean, it was just, it was as, it was as erotic and intimate and anything that I've seen in movies. And it was like, I mean, it just, <laughs> It grabbed you and it didn't let go. And I'm like, that was worth sitting through two hours for. Just that execution. And I mean, it was like you were with them. You were with that, like you got, you got to give something past there and it meant something. And it just, oh, it was, it was truly beautiful. And it's, it, it really was literally and figuratively the climax yes. of the film because it's in a sense, you're watching her from across the way and the music plays and it's about, it's it's probably five minutes, yeah, five, three minutes. Th three to five minutes or something, and it the music is uh, 
It's Vivaldi. Yeah, I I it's it Vivaldi. yeah, it's it's from it's summer from Four Seasons, and uh, and you just see, and the entirety of her character and the arc of the of the film is encapsulated in that five minutes, and it's just it's it's so compelling, and it's just it's 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 a dynamic piece of filmmaking at that point and you're right about the sound because i'll tell you why that's true and i noticed it very early in the movie because i went to uh, a midday showing and you know it's very quiet and there's there's you know and of course i had in the row in front of me about 10 seats away an old couple having a discussion <laughs> like they're sitting in their living room about something <laughs> And I was like, the movie starts, and I'm like, right, you know what, I'll just be cool about it. And then it kept going, so I had to get up and ask them to kindly not speak anymore. And uh, I, but it was like the movie is so quiet. Like if you were eating popcorn, I don't know how you could. <laughs> it would like the chewing would take up the whole auditorium. But what I loved about it with that end sequence and tying it back with the music and the book chapter number 28 being in the the painting oh, that she yeah. sees and it ties back to that everything ties back and like i said before it gives meaning where you thought there really wasn't much yeah and it and it, you know it gets into the into the discussion that they have um of orpheus yeah the the myth and did he do that intentionally or like it, did he not actually want his lover he just wanted the memory of his lover, the the sense of having had that, of being, he's a poet, so he wants to actually have that lack, you know, yeah. he doesn't want it. And so I just thought that was extremely well done and elevated the previous, you know, uh, hour and 45 minutes, um, which it's interesting because it, it is worth talking about. It's a French film and it's a very French film. Yes. You know, pacing wise, it, it is much, much slower than American audiences are sort of attuned to enjoying. That was um, the most understated statement. I mean, American, <laughs> American audiences watching this, if you're not used to it, I mean, they carry things for, like, they'll walk into a room and it'll feel like it's like three minutes and nothing really happens. They just let you sit with it. So it, it's definitely, if you're not used to it, this, this is not Bad Boys 3. This is not Armageddon 2. This is not Marvel. I mean, this is, this. you You are, I mean, you got to sit still, be quiet, and just absorb. Yeah, it's true. And, and that can be difficult. Um, the other thing, interestingly about it, in terms of, you know, sex and stuff like that, there isn't much. They, it, was, it was a much longer burn, which I really enjoyed um, because it, 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 I think it made... To me, when movies do this and, and they have t either there's too much sex or that the sex happens early and that's kind of the story, how they crafted the end to look back on it, it would only be the physical. And this had so much more meaning. It was the physical, but it was also this connection and the you know, shared experiences and shared pain and shared moments that I think sometimes get lost if it's just purely an erotic film. Uh, and I thought that was a good choice. And the thing I'm going to tip my hat to the director is, I mean, the more I think about it, I mean, talk about a commitment. Like, do you know how many times I would have been sitting in the editing room that I would have had the conversation with myself being like, well, if we just add a little music here, 
Like, right. Yes, yep. just good. And 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 it is so important to not have it for the end that it is like I will wreck my movie in order to have that moment work. And the dedication to fight for that, I am at, utterly in awe of. I mean, I, I I have so much respect for that choice because it would have been so easy for everybody, including a director, to be like, well, let's just. We'll just we'll make it less. It won't be a big music. It'll just be like notes. It'll be a little bit of this, and any of that would have impacted the ending and affected the movie in a negative term. And I just, when people make bold choices that are right, I want to give them all the credit in the world. And I, I think she did a fantastic job. I couldn't agree more. It's the key to the film is how bleak and Spartan the aesthetic is in terms of of the sound. And they're living in this, I don't know if it's an island or, or uh, a villa on the coast, but it's a pretty bleak existence. And, you know, I mean, they're, she's an aristocrat, so it's not like they're poor, but, uh, you know, it's, it's very Spartan. And the fact that there's no music creates that sort of, that echo when, when shoes, you know, are hitting the floor as they walk and things like that. So it has that feeling of this almost lifeless existence. And, you know, and, and then even when the music is played the first time, when she plays it on the piano or harpsichord, or whatever it is, um, it's very clumsy. tinny. Yeah. yeah, it's clumsy. And it's like, it doesn't blossom and become full until the orchestra, the very last five minutes. And I just think that's, that's I agree with you. It's, it's a really brave and bold choice. And it, it just feeds into the narrative and it, it supports and elevates it. And if you put music throughout that or even sporadically throughout it, it just obliterates Correct. all of that meaning. Yes. And the other thing to, to, to note is it really is, you know, this is, this is sort of what feminist filmmaking should be yeah. in that it's a story about, you know, it's an 18th century, late 18th century, and it's about the limitations, the very severe restrictions and limitations that these women face yep. and how they have to navigate the world in which they inhabit. And yes, they are, uh, at least, you know, we don't know if they're, you know, lesbian or if they're just, it's, it's a thing between the two of them. But all of these obstacles, as you mentioned before, they're so key. And I was thinking about... Um, Call Me By Your Name, which came out, I think, two, two or three years ago. And, you know, it was nominated for an Oscar. It won the Best uh, Adapted Screenplay, I think. And that film had no obstacles in it. It was set in the, in the 1980s. And it's about these two men who fall in love and nobody cares. Like, the villagers in the Italian little town they live in don't care. The kid's family doesn't care. It's like, oh, hey, here's a movie about two guys just having an affair. And it's like, oh, well, there's no drama. Yeah. You know, there's like nothing to it. Whereas with these women, because of the restrictions and because, oh, I mean, the sentence when the, when the maid says, oh, the, the, her mother's returning tomorrow. It's like, you know, it's over. Yes. And there's nothing you can do. And by the way, the woman still paints the portrait of the aristocrat knowing yeah. that it will mean she gets married and has to move to Milan and she'll never see her again. But, but she has to do it. But that, that's what, when I said that, I, even though the script is uneven, the script understands what needs to be there to tell a story like this 
very, very well. It wasn't perfect, which is why I can't figure out what to pick it on. But it's like the sort of things where when it, when it was awry, it was just like, I don't know what they're doing and it seems like poor choices. But when it was done right, it was like great cinema. So it's kind of like, normally it's kind of like, well, I like that, didn't like that. This was kind of like, well, I don't like that, but that stuff's fantastic. So do I weight it heavier because the good stuff was that much better? And it, 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 it's a, I mean, literally this movie is, I'm sure it'll be one of the movies this entire year that will stick with me. Like it, it, it doesn't leave your mind, good, bad, or ugly. And what I did love about it is the fact that, you know, like you said, is it a lesbian movie? Is it just a love movie? Is it, you know, like you, you're not really sure what it is and that's part of the joy of it. You don't know what journey you're really on. You're just seeing people reacting to things. And one of the things I thought would have been a very easy mistake for uh, a director to make is if it was purely about the physical, when they finally did, you know, sleep together, that's when you could have brought in more music and, and felt like that was the fulfilling part. But by choosing to leave it till the end and after they were apart, it was like, no matter what they did in this kind of time frame of their life, no matter what was good or bad, there was still like hollowness to it. There, it, you know, it couldn't be as full of life as it could otherwise be. And they had to find that somewhere else. And it was painful. I mean, it reminded me of something like Casablanca, where there's like a, you know, you wish it could be a different way, but it can't be. And therefore, there's like a certain amount of pain that's usually with that. But in this movie, there was almost, even though they didn't end up together, there was like some really nice kind of resolving where you felt like it actually mattered that they met each other and it meant something. And I think right. a lot of movies where people break up, and I think a lot of times in real life when people break up, you color the past to like destroy, and this one elevated and it made it feel, it, to me it made it feel much more intimate and there was much more at stake and it made it far more poetic and beautiful at the end. But it also, when you think about it, there's so much pain that's there. And it's both at the same time. And I'm like, man, this is some complex stuff that they dove into and they made you sit with it. They just literally made you sit with it. And it was so quiet in that theater. And, you know, the, like you said, the footsteps, the breathing. I, one of the things I can remember is just the, the sound of the clothes rubbing. Like these huge dresses and you just hear yeah. them walking. Or you'd have, you'd, you'd have, they'd be sitting at a table and you just hear that wood as they would slide along the bench or move something on the table. And you were just like, this is a world kind of devoid of sense, sensory input. Yes, yeah. Very empty. And you were, and you got, after a while, you're like, something, give me something to fill this void. And I think that was very much what the characters were. Even though the painter had, in theory, this life and experiences, by looking at her, she seemed void inside. And this aristocrat that seemed to be filled with all the stuff, but was stifled and out of it, and she just wanted out. So you're like, how does this not work? Like everything should work and nothing's working. And yet you're just watching this very intricate slow burn happen over two hours. And I, what a interesting movie, holy cow. Yeah, it, it's funny, you know, in terms of, it, it's really a traditional romantic movie, you know? So like you think about like classic Hollywood love stories, you know, there are barriers that people have to overcome and they, they're together and then they can't be together. Um, but like even, even the sex in the film, they cut away from, 
Yeah. And, you know, there's there's very little nudity and stuff like that, you know, especially considering it's a French movie. You think, cool. like, oh dear. Um, this is a so it's, French movie. So if you're familiar with French movies, it's definitely a tame French movie. <laughs> right. You know, so it's very traditional in that sense. And, you know, I was thinking about there's this bittersweet sense um, between the two of them, which again gets back to the Orpheus story and uh, his turning around and seeing his, his wife and she has to go back into hell and all that. And he, the, it's the bitterness, the bittersweet that he wants to taste, you know, that's the argument in part of the film, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But um, in the film, there are senses of that, that when she goes to the gallery and she sees a portrait of uh, the aristocrat and she sees the number 28 in the book, which indicates, oh, here's a secret message that I'm thinking about you and it meant something. But then the camera pans over to her daughter. No, you have it wrong. You're close. So let me set the frame and I'm gonna go back. Okay, set the frame, set the frame. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is the night, you know, they've been told that the mother's coming back. And by the way, did you recognize who the mother was? Yes, uh, uh, I can't remember her name, but yes, she's from... um, Tom Cruise's uh, famous movie. Yes. Rain Man. She was, she was the girl yes, yes. in Rain Man. I recognized yes. her. I'm like, that looks like, I'm like, oh, it probably is. <laughs> yeah, totally. So they, they share their final night together and they're talking about this portrait that they're trying to get right. And she draws the, the, the you know, the artist draws the aristocrat and they're kind of sitting there, you know, scantily clad in bed. And it was very interesting that the aristocrat said, you know, you're going to have that after this is over. And at some point, you'll think more about that image than you will about me. At some point, the memory will overtake who I am, which ties in to the Orpheus story. And then what's great, as opposed to yelling about that, they have this conversation of like, well, would you like one of me? And she's like, yes. So she's also embracing like, if I can't have you, I'd rather have something that can become the memory of you as opposed to that. So she, she draws herself, she hands her her book, and it says, pick a chapter, chapter 28. And she draws herself through a uh, mirror that's laying on her body and she draws herself. And so they, they, it's very subtle. You're like, why did she ask, ask her to call out a chapter? And then you see it subtly in the corner there, 28. So when she goes to the gallery, someone else has painted her now years later, they've been apart and you see her and immediately you're like, oh my God, she's seeing her lover in this portrait. And then the camera goes down and you see a little girl. And, it, and you immediately like, oh, her life has moved on. Like, you know, she's stuck yeah. in the past. Then the camera moves to the left and you see her hands, which they talked about early in the film, always notice how they pose their hands. And right. she's holding a book and her fingers in and you can clearly see chapter 28. And so the audience is like, not only has she moved on, but she still holds what was important from the past. And you get goosebumps and you realize that again, it is an intimate, it's this like, it is, it, is, it is like a connection that is beyond space and time, which is what people want to believe love is anyway. And you're just like, holy cow. Like it just, it just bays over you in that moment because just, just the choice of the, you know, we see the portrait, we know who it is. We cut back to her and you just see her eyes go, oh my God, that was my love. You go back and then you realize she has a girl, she's moved on. And then we go over in the book and then it's like, no, she hasn't moved on. Life has moved on, but their relationship meant something. And I just, I was like, 
check, 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 check. <laughs> Those are the scenes that make up great movies. And that was certainly one of them. Yeah, it's, I bring up the child in the picture because it's so interesting to me that that's another theme um, oh, yes. that, that gets touched upon. And I think it's incredibly well done. So the aristocrat has obviously had a daughter, the daughter is there, and this is now the love of her life, this daughter. And then, you know, there's the nod to chapter 28. So it's like, oh, but what we had was very special. Now, jump back in time to a scene in the film, which there's this, you know, B story about the maid who gets pregnant. And she's a very young maid and she doesn't know what to do. And so the two women help her find a townswoman and the townswoman uh, tries to get her to miscarry, but then she has to actually have an abortion by this sort of townswoman who does it. And the way they shoot that scene is really, I thought it was incredibly well done and deeply, deeply impactful. And by the way, uh, there was no pandering whatsoever in terms of the film's politics. So the girl is, everybody's in the same room in this little cabin and the, the young maid is asked to get on the bed and lift her knees up and the townswoman, you know, starts uh, performing the abortion and the camera just goes to an overhead shot where you see the reaction on the face of this girl. Now, the important thing to remember is she's lying on a bed and on that bed when she first gets on it, is a toddler and a, a, a baby, yeah. basically. So basically the, this townswoman's kids are literally lying on the bed next to her. And as they go to the overhead shot and she's grimacing in pain from, what, from this abortion, the baby is playing with her, like playing with her hands and playing with her face and stuff like that. And by the way, it's a beautiful baby, just the, the oh. most adorable baby you'll see. And it is so effective because the film is acknowledging, and again, not, not to get into the politics of it, but just the film is acknowledging- The messiness. The messiness of that. And this is, this is a human life that is being uh, exterminated. And it's, it's very powerful, this scene, because the girl who's having the abortion is in physical pain, and then you see it transform into emotional, pain because she turns and she looks at this baby and she starts crying yeah. and it's really well done and then you fast forward to the end where there's this picture of the aristocrat with a little girl and it's like oh the aristocrat gets to have a baby yeah the maid can't have a baby she literally has to abort her child because she'll lose her job if she's pregnant and all of that 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 means and the idea of like having a, a daughter as opposed to a son so like this sort of torment of in terms of the the feminism of the film the torment that women go through the barriers that they have the prison that they live in even if it's a gilded cage is perpetuated not just by men but by women because the maid says oh if your mother finds out that i'm pregnant i'll be out of here and I'll, I'll starve and you know, all these things. So I just thought that was one of my favorite scenes was the abortion scene because it's so uncomfortable and yet it's so profound. It, it, it's, it's a very, very well done sequence. So you, I was gonna get back to some of the things I didn't like about the film, but 
in listening to that, because I agree, I've written in my notes that, you know, that that scene is one of the best scenes in the film. And it's so effective because it doesn't necessarily take a stance on anything. They just show you and it's just really difficult. Regardless yeah. of what you think, it is a complicated, you know, mess. And one of the things I don't like about the movie is I don't like the B story. It seems, for most of it, it seems very clumsy. It seems to take away from the other bit and I didn't really understand you know, it, it felt like they needed something, so they, this was the best they could come up with. But it mirrors the larger movie, that the clumsiness of the first part, because that end sequence is so effective, so well done, you can sit through the poor B story to get to the great ending of it. And it's weird that they, both the B story and A story wrap up in such a profound, beautifully shot, beautifully executed, with lots of meaning and emotion behind it. Whereas for the first part, not as successful. And yeah. I think it's interesting because now one of the things I was going to say is it's like, I wish they would have either picked a different B story or, or modified it because I felt like that was one of the weakest parts of the film, but I wouldn't give up the abortion sequence. Right. <laughs> like yeah. if, if that's the trade-off, you can't give that up because it is so, it is, that is, you know, cin cinematic masterpiece right there. I mean, it was so interesting when it, I guess here's a question. So they layer on the bed. It's kind of a wide shot where you see the aristocrat and the painter kind of in the left. Then you see this, you know, townswoman that's going to perform the abortion. The maid that lays down on the bed and you see the kids kind of on the far side of her. And so you kind of see, you know, it's, it's a distance. You're at a distance from it. So it's kind of like you're protected a little bit. You, your eyes can wander. You don't have to look. Then when they cut to overhead where you see kind of the, the lower part of the frame is kind of like her knees, so you don't really see the mother anymore. So you're forced to look at this maid and what she's going through. And then that baby kind of leans into the corner of the frame and the connection between her and that maid is absolutely palpable. Yeah. And it is, it, it, it forces the audience into an uncomfortable reality where they can't look away. And it's so brilliantly executed, but then they didn't, they didn't zoom in. They didn't overly punctuate. Like, that's what I loved about this movie is there were times where I wished they could have accentuated things. But I think what would have likely have happened is they would have, they would have you know, been too on the nose for those brilliant parts. And so I'll sacrifice some lesser moments as long as we, the big ones are done well. And I, I, I just, oh, it was so well done. Yeah, it's interesting you use that phrase, can't look away. The audience can't look away. And that's intentional because in that scene, the aristocrat, uh, and the painter are standing there and the painter turns away yeah. and can't watch. And the aristocrat says, you have to watch, you can't yeah. turn away. And that's where we are. We're forced to watch this because we have to admit, and then with, with the, the baby in, coming into the frame, we have to admit what's happening. We can't avoid it. And the other part about that B story, which is a fairly interesting little turn is, is the last time we see the maid, uh, she's in the kitchen yeah. and she, and the guy who has gotten her pregnant is obviously he's there. We don't know it's that guy, but she gives a look to the painter, the maid does. And it's like, don't say anything. Yeah. And so she's still with this guy, you know, it's like, these are my options are this guy or nothing. And I'll yeah. take this guy who's, you know, total ass. Um, so it's, it's interesting that turn up, but I, but I agree the B story is 
not the strongest part. I thought that the abortion scene was maybe the best scene in the film besides the ending, but it all, that B story also held to me the worst scene, which was the bonfire scene when the women Whoa. start dancing and clapping and singing. Did you understand and what that was? I, I did. I did didn't understand, understand what it, it was even there for. It was the idea of like this, the power of the female and this sort of witchy uh, sort of energy, which I get, but it's so poorly executed. What I hated about that scene, oddly enough, was that it, there was music in it, yeah. that they're singing and clapping and stuff, but it's overproduced. It is obviously not live sound, yeah. which drove me crazy because like, why it takes you so out of the scene and out of the film. Because as we said, there's no music in the movie. And all of a sudden you're playing a cassette tape of these of some Gregorian <laughs> chant or whatever they're doing. It just really didn't work for me. And uh, that was the part that I didn't like. But, you know, I, I mean, over, I, and here's another thought about the end, by the way, I know I'm all over the map. But the number 28 in the book and the woman listening to the orchestra and having such a reaction to it, it reminded me of another gay-themed film, uh, Brokeback Mountain, where uh, Heath Ledger's character uh, goes to his, his dead lover's uh, childhood home, and he's in the room, and he hugs the empty shirt and smells it. And it's like, that is palpable. That makes everything, and Brokeback's a very different movie and story, but that represents that, like, this is a love story. This is a, a heartbreaking and aching sort of story. And that's what the music at the end of, of this film does and, and does extremely, extremely well. So we've touched a lot of things we liked. I'm going to jump back to something I didn't like that you said maybe you didn't pick up on. I thought so, it was so weird to me that so much of the movie was shot what I would call medium close-up. Yeah. They were all singles with very little camera movement. And what I didn't like is that it almost, I mean, so much of the movie was people watching each other. Like that was the movie. It's basically a voyeuristic, not in a sexual thing, but it's a voyeuristic, like, what are you thinking? What are you reacting to? How, like, how, like what's going on behind you know, the surface? And I hated the fact that they were all singles without context. There were very few shots where you could watch both of them, like consume or have pieces of one in a shot and looking at the other person. I always felt, and I think they were trying to do it so that, you know, it was kind of like the barriers are in real life where you can't see. Right, yeah. But I felt like oftentimes it didn't allow, because I was feeling as an audience member, I had to make up for their lack of chemistry it made it harder for me to connect with the two of them. I think had they had chemistry and that would have been just kind of like bubbling over the frame, I think you could have done that and made it feel, you know, make, kind of, I guess, reinforce that they're not really connected even though they're in the same room. But I was really, really bothered because I'm like, I need help here, guys. This isn't working for me. Yeah. And I, I didn't like that choice. Um, and I'm curious to see what you think about that. Yeah, you know, I... I understand what you're saying. I think that choice is obviously an intentional one and it's meant to uh, convey, again, the limitations in, in which they live and the isolation in which these women live. 
the emotional isolation. And so the singles are, the framing is both uh, like a painting, right? And also like a prison cell so that they are confined in their space. And the times you do get wide sort of shots, like for instance, when the aristocrat goes swimming for the first time. Yeah. Um, that's this wide shot and it, of course it doesn't move, right? It's just, mm -hmm. it's letting her be the movement and she strips down and she runs into the water um, with a, a sort of slip type thing on. And that's, I mean, you could see that hanging in the Tate Gallery, right? That shot of like this yep. almost naked woman running into the vast ocean where she may possibly drown as we're watching the movie. Um, and so I, I feel like that was the choice that ultimately they never change except when at the end the, the painter is in a gallery and she has she realizes she can see her lover in portrait form and the camera moves with her through a crowd as she's bumping into people and all that sort of stuff and that's the only time you really get that except when she first meets the aristocrat and they go for a walk and the aristocrat runs towards a cliff as if she's going to jump into to her death as her sister had and the camera follows her it never moves besides that it's all everything's so yeah. static and so singular and so it's interesting that like they're running towards something and there's movement and it's desperation that's pushing them and so i get it i i was not as bothered by that uh, especially i felt like at the end i felt the end overcame that limitation um and much like the decision not to use music i thought that actually Yes. that worked it is difficult though for even for people like us yeah. you know to we're so conditioned to more and needing more and wanting more that when a film is so explicit about its limitations and that's part of the story it's telling it's an uncomfortable experience and i think that's the point um that it's uncomfortable and so whether it's the Spartan music or visuals, it, it, it has that sense to it. Um, so that's my thought. I, I think one of my favorite shots of the movie, um, maybe it's overstating it, but one I liked how it was crafted is the first part, you don't meet the aristocrat. Like it's, it's one of those great movies where you know the movie's about these two and you know very little about the aristocrat. And it's like, you know, there was another painter, but the painting, you know, is of her body but no face so it's like you're you're trying to get whatever information you can about this woman you know we're told that she's got blonde hair and you know but you don't know much about it so when she first goes out she's like basically in this dark cloak and so you still don't see her face so this painter has to follow her out and you're like walking and you're like you know why can't we see her is this the person whatever and just her hood kind of falls down and you see the blonde hair and you're like this is her and it's just like the same way a painter has to to get to know the person little bits little bits little bits so yeah. it's like we still don't see her face and then she runs you know goes hightailing it down runs you know gonna jump off and then turns around and it's like they're staring at each other and it's like the first time they've really met and you're like this you know it kind of sets it up like we had to wait so long to meet her but we don't really know her so let's find out what this is and then you got you know an hour and a half before the climax of that 
and I thought it was, I, I loved the fact that you didn't get to know and you kind of set this up and it was this kind of dramatic moment then it drops you right back into boring, static, we're not getting out of here. Because I think a lot of times in life, people look for that excitement. They want to go jump out of a plane. They want a midlife crisis. You do dramatic things to break up the monotony or the trap or where you feel like you don't have an out. But ultimately, unless you do something like, you know, jump off the cliff, when that excitement's over, it's the same. Yeah. Same thing. And I love that. that you're like, well, is it, okay, is she going to be this rebel woman that's out there to do this? Nope. She's just trying to figure out a way to navigate her dull life that she doesn't want, but there isn't really a lot of options. And it's just coming to terms with this is what life is. And I just, the metaphors were there. And the crappy part is, is so many of the metaphors are the stuff about life that none of us like. So yes. It, yeah. it, is, it is an uncomfortable because you're like, I don't want to think about that. That sucks in real life. But there's like a shared, you know, it's, it's the humanity of it and that emotional impact that we said is so universal that no matter where you come from, someone has some story of their life that can, can, can connect with so many of these different moments. And I think that's what makes the film so brilliant is that they did make it very, very, very accessible to a very broad audience, even though it's a French film with subtitles about this romance with no music. And that's very, you know, long and not very action-packed. And yet we yeah. identify with it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting about the swimming that uh, this, the film opens with the painter being uh, rowed to the, the location and it, it very rough seas and uh, her canvas accidentally falls into the water and starts floating away. And she jumps into the water and swims over and gets it and saves it and then when she gets to the island or home she has to dry it and all these things but when it first happened i thought to myself like uh mm. I, I didn't like that scene because i thought you know most people in late 1800s 18th century they couldn't swim yeah most people couldn't swim um nobody really learned how to swim back then it was very rare especially and in a so I, dress that when you get it wet yeah 100 pounds <laughs> right but i was like uh and i instantly sort of had a negative reaction to the film but then when she's with the aristocrat and the aristocrat ends up going into the ocean she says before that she's like no i don't know how to swim and she's like oh oh and it's this dangerous thing and she's going into the water and what's interesting is that the aristocrat says when she gets back she's like oh how did i do you know she's like i can't swim but how did i do <laughs> the painter says but you can float <laughs> and what's interesting about that is that the painter in her life does not have to get married she can run her father's business when he dies she can paint she has the power in her life she is empowered just by the sense that she's not an aristocrat that she can swim she has she can face a direction and accomplish something by swimming and getting where she wants to go in a sense. She can't swim the whole ocean or whatever, but if she can swim and get her canvas and bring it back and save it. Whereas the aristocrat is stuck. All she can do is float. And wherever the, the tide and the currents take her is where she's gonna go and that's it. And that's the story of two of these people. Yeah. And I thought that was really very poetic. It, like most of the things in the film that tie back to something earlier i just it, it it's a very very poetic film much like it's it's telling the story of orpheus and is he a a lover or is he a poet 
and he's a poet at the end of the day and and I think that's what this film is it's it's really a film about poetry and the poetry of love and and artistry and things like that um yeah so this is this is super nitpicky so this is probably something I shouldn't bring up but that opening scene where it's rough waters and the canvas falls out the thing that bothered me most about that it was like the canvas was just kind of shuffling and the next scene it's like way over there I'm like well how did you like jump out of the boat <laughs> like, i was kind of like this is like a they edited it in such a weird way that i was kind of like yeah i didn't buy that but i'm like hey it's a french film this is like the opening scene i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be like super super really curmudgeonly that early um but that was one of those ones where i'm like that was not the smoothest edit i've seen in the film uh, agreed. Yes, uh, they they definitely that was a bit bumpy. But uh, I'm wondering, do we have anything else to say about this movie? I mean, I I I like. I think this is a movie not for everybody. Like this is like something like Parasite. I would recommend more American audiences see. It's more accessible. Yeah, definitely. If though you are inclined, either a if you like foreign films or if you really like to study how stories are crafted and the emotional impact, this is one of the better ones of recent memory because it is so bold and the, the, the changes between the moments where you're like, I don't know if this is working to like it's working, they're so dramatic. I think I would love for this to find a larger audience, but caution, like if this isn't your cup of tea, you're not a bad person to not want to go see this movie. Because, you know, I, I shifted my seat a couple times during the two hours plus. You're like, okay, this is oh, I, I this is a commitment. I, I actually went out and got lunch and, and came back. Uh, I was gone for about 45 minutes uh, for the film. I was like, you know what? Nothing, nothing's going to happen. I'll you be didn't right see back. You did gorilla driving the horse and buggy Okay. Well, I'll say this. The old couple that were talking at the beginning, um, had to let everybody know how they felt about the movie when it ended, and they loved it. Oh, good. Even though, even though they talked through the whole thing, and I think one of them was deaf, um, <laughs> they, 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 they loved the movie. It didn't hurt you that much. This movie, you could understand <laughs> what was going on even if you were deaf, so. Yes. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think, you know, Parasite is infinitely more accessible. I think it's, it's just structurally more uh, something that, that, it, that American audiences can digest. This is, is again, a very French film in pacing and in structure. Um, I'd be really interested though to, to hear, because it, it, is, it is playing in a lot of places. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's playing here, uh, you know, again, this is Los Angeles, but like it, it's on a ton of screens here. And, you know, I, I think it's doing pretty well, all things considered. But I would be interested to hear what people think of it um, who are not sort of cinephiles and things like that. And uh, particularly, I'd be interested to hear what women think of it yeah. because um, I, I think it may be much more uh, accessible or, or, or poignant to them um, in terms of particularly, you know, middle-aged and up women who have, who have been through sort of the the evolution of, of the culture and things like that that would be interesting to hear from um that perspective i agree and i think i would have i would agree, i would have agreed more prior to seeing it um because that's what i would have assumed based on the subject matter but having seen it i think it's so universal 
that I think that if people go sit through it and experience it, I definitely think, you know, it isn't just aimed at women. And yeah. It's, yeah. It's, no, I, I don't think it's aimed at women. I just think that I would be interested to hear that perspective. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. Um, but I think, I think it would be very similar to what, you know, what a lot of other people say about it because it is such a universal. I'm trying to look up as I'm speaking, which sounds like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to look up the budget of the movie, but right now the uh, the box office worldwide is a little over seven million. Um, and the other thing about men seeing the movie, just be forewarned, uh, it's a French film about you know a lesbian affair. Lower your expectations. There's not enough nudity or sex in it. <laughs> Uh, to it's not, to it's not yeah, it's, Weinstein's movie exactly. <laughs> oh God, jeez, no, it's not. Uh, thankfully, it's not. Um, yeah, so it's not going to be satisfying um, for people looking for nudity. People like like Barry. Um, yeah, yes. go to go to movies. Go to movies to see uh, naked women. Um, anyway, so uh, do we have any final thoughts on Portrait of a Lady on Fire? No, I mean, I, I, it's, a, it's an interesting one to, to, to talk about because not, I, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners will have seen it and I don't know how many people will listen to this and either be inspired to watch it or go, oh no, what they just said there, I would never watch that movie. Um, but I'd love if anybody's listening and want to give us feedback on if they've seen it, either has seen it before we talked about it or afterwards, I'd love to hear what they, what they think. And, and uh, yeah, this is just one of those fun movies that you could talk about with other people uh, talking about stories and life and emotions and humanity because uh that's what that's what we all are here to experience i agree i agree yeah it's it's i found it to be um a, one of those really intriguing movies that you, you're sort of not sure about until the last 10 minutes and then it, it just it sort of knocks one uh it's, it's not a home run but it's a double in the gap anyway yeah, absolutely um so yeah so that uh that's it for us for portrait of a lady on fire uh, thank you so much for listening. My name is Mike McCaffrey. This is Barry Anderson, and this has been Looking California and Feeling Minnesota. <laughs>